Let's, um, let's remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. Today's text comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And the word of the Lord says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. Coming up on October 31st, we'll celebrate the 502nd anniversary of the Reformation. It's the time when the Protestant church was born when people were set free from the idea that they had to do good and be good in order to get in good with God. Now, the reformers used this word solus, a Latin word that means alone. And out of the Reformation, there came to be this set of beliefs that define our faith to this day. Five solas of the Reformation. Salvation comes through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So today we find ourselves right in the middle of a series about these solas, about these alones called the core. And we're looking at these five core doctrines that came out of the Protestant Reformation and resulted in churches like Carlton Baptist. So last week we talked about faith alone. Martin Luther taught, wrote about this idea called justification by faith, meaning we're not saved by our good works and, and we're not saved by punishing ourselves for our sins to make up for our good works. But instead, Luther said that we're saved by trusting that Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross. William Barclay wrote that this little phrase, justification by faith, answers the ultimate questions of life. And those questions are, how can I be in a right relationship with God? How can I feel at peace with God? How can I live my life not fearing death, not fearing being face-to-face with God? How can I live not being in fear of God's judgment? Now, Judaism, prior to Jesus, had the answer to this question, and the answer was, keep the law. Follow all the rules. Uh, An old preacher of mine and Daniel's used to say, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dip, don't chew, and don't kiss the girls that do. Follow the rules. Don't play cards. Don't go to square dances. Whatever they taught you when you were a kid. Don't watch rated R movies. Avoid the big sins, and then you can be in good with God. But the problem with this line of thinking is that it's absolutely impossible 
for any of us to keep the law perfectly. It's absolutely impossible to follow the law to a T. So we have these laws in the Bible and we have these rules in the Bible. And a lot of times we as Christians use these rules as a way to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Uh, I call it the at least I mindset. Well, I might smoke and drink a little bit, but at least I don't do what Jason Luke does. I mean, we all know what Jason Luke does. Uh, but, we, 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 but that's not why the laws are there. They're not there for us to use to condemn others. It's to make us aware of our own sin. The law is designed to show us our weakness and our tendency to choose sin. But the good news is our depravity doesn't shut us out from God. Because the way to God is not through the law. It's not through following all the rules to a T. But by trusting in His love and trusting in His goodness Trusting in His grace. Trusting that the blood of Christ paid the price for all of our sins. We aren't put in right relationship with God through confidence in what we've done. Instead, we receive that right relationship with God as a gift. Through confidence in what Christ has done for us. We aren't justified by our own works. We're justified by our faith in Jesus. Now, this isn't a comfortable idea for a lot of people. It would be much easier if we had a religion that was just built on rules. Give me rule number 1 through 10. I'll follow those rules, and then I can be in good with God. But that's not faith in God at all. That's faith in myself. A pastor named Scott Sauls, one of my favorite contemporary pastors, called it the natural religion of every human heart. Justification by self. Confidence in self. The problem is there's no measure of good moral behavior, no act of generosity, no commitment to following the rules that will ever get you in good with God. We aren't justified before God by doing good things or by avoiding bad things. We're justified by our faith And what Christ did for us when he paid the price for our sins on the cross. Which brings us to today. Grace alone. Solo gratia. Grace alone. Dr. Kim Riddlebarger is a systematic theology professor and a pastor. And he wrote this. He wrote, When we use the term grace alone, what we mean is that our salvation from the wrath of God, our deliverance from hell... It's because of something good in God, not because of anything good in us. Now, this quote says a couple of things to me. First, it says, God is good. And second, it says, I am decidedly not good. Now, it is easy for us to confess that God is good. For people in my generation and older... We said it from the time we were in elementary school lunchrooms. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I don't think any of us have a problem accepting that God is good. But to accept that there's nothing good inside of us seems a little harsh. 
That seems self-condemning and it seems like it would give somebody a a negative self-image. And that's very much, we can't give people a negative self-image today. We can't do that. And how can we say there's nothing good in us? I mean, I'm generally a good person, right? I mean, at least I'm not like Johnny House, right? I, I mean, I'm a good person, right? So if I'm pretty good then there shouldn't be a problem with me getting into heaven. There shouldn't be a problem with me getting in good with God. I mean, all good people go to heaven, right? Don't they? That's a question. Thank you, Henry. Henry listens on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. I can always count on Henry for the right answer. Now completely lost my place. Do all good people go to heaven? Thank you, Tim. Tim's listening too. He's not asleep yet. Uh, So, do all good people go to heaven? The answer is no. Because the fact is, no one's good. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, It is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Could that really be accurate? That nobody is righteous and nobody understands and no one seeks God and no one does good? It's a point that Paul really wanted to drive home when he wrote these lines. And so he said it twice. None is righteous. Not even one. So our true spiritual condition, no matter how well we follow the rules, no matter how often we attend church, no matter how presentable we are in polite company, our spiritual condition is not good. And Scripture makes it clear. Ephesians 2.1 says, We're so dead in our sins, only God can make us alive. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, We're so blind, only God can give us sight. Psalm 51.5 says, We're so sinful, only God could ever forgive us. Jeremiah 17.9 says that we're so bad, only God can make us good. Luke 19.10 says that we're so lost, only God could ever find us. Augustine wrote that without Christ, we're completely bound by sin and completely filthy. So much he used the words total depravity to define our condition. Basically, this means that there's nothing in us worth saving and nothing we can do to save ourselves. The implication here is that it literally takes an act of God to change us into something good. Now, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying here today. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad about themselves. What I'm trying to do and what Paul was trying to do was to help us all understand what God's grace is all about. It's a gift that we don't deserve. And it's a gift that we cannot earn. That's what grace is. It's more than we could ever earn and more than we could ever deserve. 
And our text today has a couple of phrases that make the idea of grace alone bear weight. If you've got your Bibles, take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to look at these. If you don't have a Bible, there's pew Bibles there. And there's some Bibles back in the back. Uh, some English Standard Version, which is what I use. And if you want to follow along with the exact same words, you can grab one of those. They're free to give away. But Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. So grace is the means by which we are saved. The gift of Christ on the cross is what saves us. And faith is the method by which we receive this salvation. Verse 9 in Ephesians 2 says, It, salvation, is the gift of God not a result of works. So salvation is received by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in the gift from God, not by following all the rules to a T, not by voting for a particular political party, not even by avoiding the big sins. Salvation is a gift from God, an expression of God's grace. Now, there's some implications to this idea, this idea of grace alone. Grace alone eliminates the need for self-confidence and promotes the idea of confidence in God. Let's read those verses again, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. They say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you think you're in good with God because you follow the rules, or at least you appear to follow the rules, that's self-confidence. And self-confidence will never, ever save you. Authentic faith is not rooted in confidence in oneself. Now, we live in a world where we think self-confidence is the center of everything that we ought to do. Uh, we live in a world where we hand out trophies for finishing eighth. And we have college professors who give everyone an A because they care more about students feeling good about themselves than they do graduating young professionals who are knowledgeable and will excel in their fields. I read just the other day about a teacher in California, a high school teacher, who gave students zeros who didn't complete their home homework assignments, and she got fired for it. That blows my mind. Not only, uh, Patrice Luke, Jason's mom, was one of my teachers in high school. Not only would she have given me a zero if I didn't do my assignments, I would have gotten my tail worn out when I got home. But this lady lost her job because of it. Because it's bad to make someone have low self-esteem. But maybe it's not so bad. Lauren Slater is a psychologist who is a freelance writer, and she wrote a, 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 an expose for the New York Times several years back. And she wrote this. She said, People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to people around them than people with low self-esteem. Now, that's something to think about, right? She said that 
They feel superior and more important to anyone around them than anyone around them. And over and over, we see these cases on television where attorneys defend perpetrators of horrible crimes and they talk about how these people had terrible upbringings and they were bullied and they felt bad about themselves. So they did terrible things because they had low self-esteem. But the fact is, Lauren Slater was right about what she wrote. On April the 20th, 1999, Ryan Harris and Dylan Klebold... Does anybody remember those names from 1999? Do you remember those names? What did they do, Jason? Columbine High School. Columbine High School. They went into Columbine High School in Colorado, loaded with firearms and ammo and explosives, and they murdered 12 students and one teacher and injured 21 more, and they changed everything about how we functioned, didn't they? Our kids have active shooter drills in schools now. We thought tornado, tornado drills were scary. The initial reports that came out about these boys were that they were loners and they didn't fit in and they were bullied. And this is why they did this. They were driven by low self-esteem. But then the New York Daily News discovered a video of Ryan Harris calmly talking about what he was going to do. And he said this, he said, Hollywood directors will be fighting over my story. I'm finally going to get the respect that I deserve. And he express, expressed hatred and feelings of superiority toward literally everyone. Blacks, Hispanics, Jews, Christians. He considered himself more intelligent and better than anyone else, and he looked forward to exerting power over these people. You see, these feelings of superiority and a desire for power and an attitude that looks at others like commodities, this is prevalent in spree shooters and in serial killers and child molesters and abusive husbands and terrorists and on and on. So it's not that they have low self-esteem that drives them to heinous acts. It's high self-esteem that drives them to these acts. And it's strange to say, but we as people need less high self-esteem and more poverty of spirit. Less boasting in ourselves and more boasting in Christ. Less faith in ourselves and more faith in God. I'm going to tell you right now, Nick Autry, back there in the back, he's one of the best sinners I've ever known. He is really good at it. But one thing I love about Nick, and he's told me this before, and I'll, I'm sorry if this embarrasses you, Nick, but he told me, he tells me that he gets up every morning and he looks in the mirror and he looks at himself and he says, I'm the worst sinner in the world. And you know what he's doing? He's following the example of Paul. Paul who said, I'm the chief of all sinners. God doesn't gift us with self-confidence, but instead he gives us the incredible gift of confidence in Him. And in Christ, 
We have the opportunity to define ourselves differently. So we don't need all this affirmation and support from the world. We are able to define ourselves as radically loved by God. And the proof of this furious love is made fully evident in the gift of Christ on the cross. This is the God of the gospel of grace. A God who out of love for sinners sent the only son he ever had and wrapped him in our skin and the creator of all things made himself totally dependent on his creation. He learned how to walk. He stumbled. He fell. He skinned his knees when he was a toddler. He cried for his mother when he was hungry at night. He sweated blood in the garden of Gethsemane. He was lashed with a whip until the bone beneath his flesh was laid bare. He was showered with spit, nailed to a cross, and died whispering forgiveness and love on all of us even though there's nothing about ourselves that we can boast in nothing in us to make us deserve this gift Brennan Manning wrote Jesus comes not for the super spiritual not for the self-confident but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. Tim Keller wrote that if you want to be in good with God, all you need is need. Jesus, I need you. I can't do it on my own. So grace alone eliminates the need for self-confidence and promotes the idea of confidence in God. Grace alone also allows us to be in an intimate relationship with God. In Ephesians chapter 1, you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 8, it says this, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, a forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Our kind of default mindset as human beings is to believe that God is continually disappointed in us that he is frustrated with us and that he's angry with us and he tolerates us at best and he's just waiting for us to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts at us. But Paul completely blows this attitude out of the water in Ephesians 1.5 where he writes that even before the world was made, God had a plan to save you and adopt you and love you the way a parent loves his own child and wipe away all of your sins and make you completely holy and completely blameless in his sight. God loving us has nothing to do with the idea that we are good. But it's an amazing thought to think that even though we're sinners, according to verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians 1, he lavishes his love And His forgiveness upon us. No strings attached. The text reads, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished 
upon us. I, I love this word lavish. It means to give generously and extravagantly, to give in an over-the-top, ridiculous, foolish kind of way. So when Paul writes about God lavishing His forgiveness and grace upon us, he means it's overflowing. It's too much. It's absolutely over-the-top. It's ridiculous. It's foolish, and it's, it's just crazy generous. What this means for us is that you have no sin, past, present, or future, that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. It means no matter what's gone down, no matter what you've done, no matter what skeletons are in your closet, what your history is, or even what sin you committed this morning, His love and His forgiveness are so over the top and so uncontainable and so uncontrollable and so untamable that none of your sins will ever outmeasure His love and the grace that He extends to you. And you might say, God, you don't know all the things I've done. God could never forgive me for what I've done. But I'll tell you, based on the truth of the Word of God, Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins in full if you just trust in His love. In Christ, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to worry if you're praying enough or if you're witnessing enough, or if you're going to church enough, or if you're serving enough to make God happy. Because the answer to those questions is, no, you're not. And you never will. You could never do enough. God doesn't accept you or reject you, though, on the basis of what you have or haven't done for Him. He accepts you on the basis of what Christ has done for you. God doesn't love you in some abstract, distant kind of way. And I want you to hear this, and I want you to get this. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. That's hard to wrap my head around. But He does. Zephaniah 3.17 says that He delights in you. Like a parent delights in his child. And He dances over you. We don't have to fear God's judgment if we're in Christ, even if we deserve God's judgment because He's loved us and He's had a plan to adopt us as His children since before time began. And I know that's offensive to some of your sensibilities because we're all good Baptists and we've all said for our entire lives, we don't believe in predestination. Well, guess what? Paul mentions it 21 times we got to talk about it. God has a plan to save us from since before time began. So grace alone paves this path for an in, intimate relationship with God. And finally, grace alone proves to us that God's love is a gift that we can never earn. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 and then we're going to read verses 8 and 9. We're keying on these verses today. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following, And I'm sorry, I'm starting back at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Skip down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. God takes dirty people while they are still dirty and covers them with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And having done that, His Holy Spirit begins to clean them up a little bit at a time. God will save anyone who will believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's no amount of cleaning up or buying new church clothes that you have to do in order to be saved. That would be confidence in yourself. In order to be saved, you have to have confidence in Jesus. Trust in Him. In order to be saved, you have to believe that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. There's no way to the Father except through the Son. You have to believe that He is the Son of God. You have to believe that He died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. You have to believe that He rose from the dead. And you have to believe and you have to trust that He is ready and willing to forgive your sins. You have to trust that Jesus is both just and the justifier. According to the book of Romans, God started the process of salvation and He finishes it. Sin must be punished because God is just. Jesus took that punishment for us and justified us before God. God is just and the justifier. It's a gift completely unmerited, completely undeserved. Grace is a completely free gift of God. It is scandalous. It is extended to the most well-behaved of Sunday school teachers and to the heathens in the bad and busted. It reminds us that Christ didn't die for us because we're good. He died for us because He is good. Since we were kids, even if we weren't raised in church, we've heard those words sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. That word wretch isn't a word that we use in everyday language. But it literally means utterly despicable. John Newton wrote those words. He was a slave trader. He split families and he tortured men and women and children. And he sold human flesh to be used for the sole purpose of expanding other men's bank accounts. So he understood what it meant to be a wretch. He understood what it meant to be utterly despicable. 
But he wrote this song weeping over the depth of his own depravity and understanding the over-the-top, amazing nature of grace, the lavish nature of grace. Randy Alcorn wrote, Grace doesn't minimize or ignore the awful reality of our sin. Grace emphasizes the depths of sin by virtue of the unthinkable price paid to redeem us from it. I've heard in my life a million times, and I've said it from the pulpit, the church isn't a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. But the fact is, you and I aren't just sick in our sins. Ephesians 2.1 says, we are dead in our sins. And that means I'm not only unworthy of salvation, but I'm completely incapable of earning it on my own. Dead people cannot pull themselves out of the grave. And that's why we need Jesus. To raise us from the dead and make us alive in him. Jefferson Bethke wrote a book called Jesus is Greater Than Religion. And in it he said, Grace isn't there for some future me, but for the real me. The me who struggled the me who was messy, the me who was addicted to porn, the me who didn't have all the answers, the me who was insecure. He loved me in my mess. He was not waiting until I cleaned myself up. All the other religions essentially say, this is what you have to do to be in right standing with God. But Jesus comes to earth and says, this is what I've freely done for you. To put you in right standing with God. Religion says do. Jesus says done. In Luke 15. Jesus tells a story. About a younger son. An older brother. And a father. And the younger son is reckless. And he makes rash decisions. And. He doesn't have an ounce of foresight about him. He lives for the moment, and he lives fast and hard. He has no regard for the hard work that his dad has put into building a family fortune. He just wants his part of it so he can go party. He asks for his inheritance even before his dad dies, and his dad gives it to him. And the younger son takes off and he blows every bit of it in what my English Standard Version Bible calls reckless living. But I like the wording of the King James Bible here. It says that he wasted his substance with riotous living. When he has nothing left, he hires himself out to a pig farmer. So he's impoverished and he's hungry and he's so hungry and so bad off that even the hog feed begins to look appealing to him. So he's starving to death. He has no money, no options, and nowhere else to turn. So he goes home. His older brother has stayed home, and he's worked hard. 
He's followed all the rules. While the younger brother was out spending all the family fortune on prostitutes. And he finds out the younger son has come home and is angry. And then there's dad. Dad who splurges everything on this younger sinful son. He lets him go off and waste it all. And then when Junior has the nerve to show up back at home with nothing in his pocket, still half drunk and reeking of the stench of pigs, Dad decides to throw the party to beat all parties for him. He puts the best clothes on this reckless son, the best shoes and the nicest jewelry, and he kills the fattest calf they have to barbecue. And he says, throw the steaks on the grill. My boy's back home. We're going to celebrate. And the older brother is angry because honestly, this wasteful, sinful younger brother doesn't deserve any of this. But that's the nature of grace. Grace is indiscriminate compassion. It pays the same wage to the early bird who clocks in on time and works like a dog all day long as it does to the grinning drunk who clocks in at quarter till quitting time. The dad says it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And now he's found. Before Jesus, no one had ever dreamed of a God like that. They thought, sure, if the younger son came crawling back home to dad, begging in shame, he might get some mercy. If he starts living better and following all the rules to a T, yeah, dad will welcome him back. Yes, son, you can come home, but you got to pay the price. You have to earn your way back into my good graces. That's the way the religious people in Jesus' time conceived God. But they never imagined a God that would actually welcome sinners and love them with without condition, without making them clean up before he accepted them, without any condemnation. In logical thinking, God should be a God who condemns and rejects sinners, not a God who would embrace them. The story is called the prodigal son, and this word prodigal means wasteful. What's funny is this word prodigal is also a synonym for the word Lavish. My theory is it's not the son that was prodigal. It's not the son that was wasteful and lavish. It was the father. This father, the Christ figure in the story, doesn't just wait on the porch for this sorry sinner of a son to come crawling back and explain himself. He sprints to him and he welcomes him home with a lavish, overflowing, over-the-top joy and love. It's the father in the story who is prodigal, who lavishes love on this wayward son, who gives this ridiculous scandalous grace to someone who does not deserve it. I always try to be perfectly transparent with you all the time. And I'll tell you, there are times when I want to hang it up and just not pastor anymore. 
it would be so much easier to just work one job and have more time to spend with Brittany and the girls and have more time to rest. But I can't stop talking about Jesus. Mike understands this, don't you? Because I'm that inconsistent and wasteful son that makes the worst choices and wanders away from the God that I know loves me, know cares for me. And when I've got nowhere else to turn, I go back to him. And time and time again, he meets me somewhere between the hog lot and home. He forgives me, welcomes me back, and even celebrates and throws a party every time I come home stinking in my sin. He not only loves us as we are, but he accepts us as we are. And he rejoices over us crawling back to his arms every time every time so I can't and I won't stop talking about him because he won't give up on me I'm going to ask our musicians to come Brennan Manning wrote in the Ragamuffin Gospel, which I think is probably the greatest book on grace I've ever read. He wrote this, he wrote, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion, is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions, the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. I shall see the sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. I shall see the deathbed convert who for decades had his cake and ate it too and broke every law of God and man and wallowed in lust. But how, we ask, 
And then the voice of God says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Manning wrote, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light and the dark. And in admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. To be alive is to be broken. To be broken is to stand in need of grace. Whatever station of life you find yourself in, there's a God who loves you. And He's given you the gift of Himself just to prove how much He loves you. Whether you're sick or depressed or lonely or addicted and guilty or just filthy from your sin, He loves you. And He offers you more than just forgiveness and more than just a pat on the back and a bless your heart. More than just a home in heaven. He gives you Himself. It's what a good Father does. Let's stand and let's sing together.